0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. If there is no deal reached by 9 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow, April 18th, I am authorizing a national general strike Okay, then tomorrow is today. Now, that was the voice of Chris Aylward there speaking yesterday. President of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Is Canada heading for a major federal strike here? This is Mike Smith, and that's where we start today with the clock ticking here towards strike action in Canada. Members of the Federal Public Service Alliance of Canada, they've set the deadline, you heard in that clip, that is 6 p.m. Vancouver time tonight. No deal by then. The union vowing to walk off the job. 155000 members of this union what could of impact could it have here well could it impact your tax return here if employees of the canada revenue agency walk off the job cra refusing to give an extension on your tax return deadline less than two weeks away what if you need a passport passport services could be disrupted we're going to discuss this dispute right now we've got a great panel here standing by for you First here, let's have a listen to the union president again. Chris Aylward here, president of the union. Here he is speaking yesterday. Our members are frustrated that while negotiations drag on, they continue to fall behind. We've already been at the table for nearly two years, and these workers can't wait any longer all right let's discuss it for you now i got both sides of it for you jim stanford economist with the center of future work very pleased to welcome him back hey jim thanks for coming on my pleasure mike good morning good morning to you thanks for doing it also on the line franco Terrazano, federal director canadian taxpayers federation good morning franco
1: Hey, good morning, and thanks for having me on. Okay,
0: thank you, guys, for doing it, Jim Stanford. Let me go to you first. You think these workers deserve a raise, right? Because they've been what? They've been wall up by inflation. They haven't had a they haven't had a contract for two years. Yeah, they've been working uh, on an expired contract for two years, and we all know what's happened uh, to inflation during
2: those two years, Mike. It, it shot up. It's come back down a bit. Uh, new inflation numbers out this morning, actually, very encouraging, down to four point three percent, but. That's still, even that, much higher than what the uh, federal government uh, is reported to be offering. So uh, they have seen the real purchasing power of their wages decline uh, over that period, and they're quite rightly determined to make it up. We're seeing the same kind of conflict happening in every industry, private sector, public sector, across Canada, because you know, workers see what inflation has done to their wages.
0: Franco Tarazano, your thoughts?
1: Well, the government union negotiators in Ottawa are pushing for up to a 47% compensation increase over three years. That number was confirmed by the Public Interest Commission. It'll cost taxpayers $9.3 billion. So we're talking about billions of dollars in higher pay and benefits, all paid for by the taxpayers who are worried about the price of gas, worried about losing their homes, and are now going to be slapped with a big tax bill to pay for bureaucrats who essentially all got pay raises over the last couple years where the average compensation with pay, pensions, pay time off, shift premiums, is about $125,000 a year on average in the federal government employment. And now they're pushing for pay and benefits that are much more lucrative than what the vast majority of ordinary taxpayers will ever have, and now are being forced to pay for.
0: Okay, I thought the union said they were asking for a 4.5% raise. Where does the 47% come from?
1: Well, that's wages, Mike, but you also have to look at all the other different types of benefits. And let me just give you some examples of the benefits that the PSAC government union negotiators are pushing for. They want more money to work past 4 p.m. And this is admin and program administrative services. So if you're working an office job and you want your boss to pay more for you to work past 4 p.m., I think you're going to get laughed out of the office. But the union is also pushing for taxpayer-funded contributions into its so-called social justice fund, to advocate on different policies, to send members to climate conferences in Madrid or in Cancun, to advocate for higher business taxes. The union is pushing for an education fund for laid-off employees of up to $17,000, two weeks of paid oh. time off, four weeks of vacation after working only four years, and overtime paid a double time. So, Mike, you get to that $125,000 compensation on average when you add up not just the wages... Uh, but the pay, okay. the pension, and those types of benefits.
0: Okay, Jim Stanford, what do you say to
1: all that?
2: Well, uh, Mike, I'm not sitting at the bargaining table between the two sides in these talks, and I don't think Franco is either, unless he's got a, a camera in there somewhere. So I don't know how Franco has any idea what they're actually negotiating. The government said uh, uh, yesterday and, and the union they were apart on three things wages, job security and some new language around remote work. Uh, This will be, I think, an interesting test case on the remote work issue. You know, in in many industries, again, private sector as well as public sector, people worked from home during the pandemic as they had to. And now the issue is, you know, under what conditions uh, are we going to go back to normal workplaces or will people have the right to work uh, hybrid, you know, two days a week or something like that? Those are the things that are talking. So this... Big wish list that Franco is losing sleep over. I don't think has any relevance to where they're at right now as the deadline approaches.
0: Doesn't the doesn't the employer though have the right to say they want your they want your butt back in the office? Right. I mean that's that's the bottom line right of the employer. I mean I can understand people want to work from home. A lot of people love it, but sure. I mean isn't it the employer's right to say no? You've got to come into the office now.
2: Well, the point of collective bargaining, uh, Mike, where you get a union and you negotiate these things, is the, the the employer does not have the dictatorial right just to call the shots. And the whole idea is uh, of collective bargaining is the union gets together and says, we'd like to negotiate these things. So in some cases, uh, without a union, you're right. The employer can say, okay, time to come back to this workplace. But even in non-union workplaces, we have a situation where employers are, are going easy on that issue Uh, For a couple of reasons. Number one, they know that it's important to the workers. Number two, in many sectors, employers have had a hard time retaining staff through and after the pandemic. So I don't think even in a non-union setting, um, many employers are just going to crack the whip and say my way or the highway. The risk there is that they just lose a lot of their staff.
0: Franco Terrazano, so what are you saying, that the Trudeau government here should dig in their heels and refuse to, to knuckle in to the demands of this union, even if there is a strike, even if people can't get their tax refunds, even if they can't get a, a passport?
1: Well, look, the reduced services and the lack of tax refunds, that's on the government union negotiators. Okay, but there's two things that these union negotiators are saying, and both are, are false. One, they say that uh, government employees are falling behind. That's just incorrect. You had 312,000 federal employees, so anywhere from 93 to 98 percent of the entire bureaucracy, who got at least one raise during the pandemic. We've seen more than 31,000 federal bureaucrats added over two years. We've seen more than 78,000 federal bureaucrats added since 2015. Then on inflation, I mean, the claim just isn't, isn't correct either, because what is more, pay time off. What is more vacation? And what does a social justice fund have to do with the rising cost of living? Nothing. I mean, what we're seeing is government union negotiators who see a big spending government in Ottawa trying to take as much money from taxpayers as they possibly can.
0: Okay, well, it's a, it's a, it may be a big spending government, but I guess they're, they're staring down this union right now. Jim, do you, see this as, do you see this as a strike? you think they're going out? Or do you think this is sort of last-minute tactics here and they get a deal?
2: Yeah, it's hard to say so far, Mike. I mean, in my experience, uh, a union always likes to have a strike vote and usually both sides push it to the deadline uh, in order to get as, you know, as good a deal from their perspective uh, as they can. So, uh, they've got uh, they got today now to see if they can narrow that gap. Um the wages, uh, there's no doubt economically that public sector wages have lagged far behind private sector wages uh, since the pandemic. Uh, and we see again this. Uh, we we see this in many different areas: uh, uh, public services, uh, teachers, uh, hospital workers, uh, etc. Now in BC, they managed to settle those agreements with the provincial public sector without a strike. We'll see if they can get to uh, you know something satisfactory for the union tonight okay. in Ottawa.
0: Okay, we got open phone lines right now as we continue to talk about the federal strike deadline. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll-free in your cell. Jim Stanford, Franco Terrazano are my guests. Let's have a listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau ask yesterday about the dispute. Here's what he had to say.
2: Conversations have been ongoing at the bargaining table for weeks now. There have been constructive advances and offers and we're very hopeful that we're going to be able to resolve this. Uh, but it's at the bargaining table that these things happen, and we will continue uh, to do the, be there in good faith and work on trying to resolve this for all Canadians.
0: Okay, whose side are you on in this one? Let me know. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Mike and Vernon. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Good
3: morning, gentlemen. Um, and I will make this brief, but I've got a, a bit to say. But first of all, we talk about them falling behind uh, the private sector. Well, you're falling behind, perhaps, in wages, although I doubt very much. But let's take a look at the benefits package. It's huge, and the, the, it's back-end loaded with pensions. So that is something that very few people in the private sector get. But let's look at some other uh, stuff that is wanted. Mandatory unconscious bias training, whatever that is. Five days off a year for traditional Indigenous practices and an extra 1500 a year for using Indigenous languages. Uh, a shift premium for anybody who has to work later than 4 p.m., a union-administered social justice fund, an extra $2,000 for veteran affairs case managers, an extra $7,000 for parole officers, um, extra leave for union training and conferences. I mean, it's just it's never-ending with the demands, and I don't know where this is going to end. And okay. I think there has to be a little bit of an understanding that the taxpayers are pretty taxed as it is, and there has to be some leeway.
0: Jim Stanford, what do you say to him?
2: Again, I think
3: like uh, like
2: Franco was, Mike must be reading from some initial list of demands that uh, was tabled in the, in the early stages of the negotiations. No, none of us on this call have any idea what they're actually negotiating at the bargaining table right now. And I know that uh, how it works in bargaining is both the union and the employer come in with a whole list of things that they'd love to see. And then in the course of months, or in this case, years, that list gets whittled down to a few stickler issues, and the stickler issues, as I understand from the media, are the wages, some job security language, and then this remote work issue. I think the remote work issue will be, the, in a way, the most interesting and perhaps the toughest nut to crack. But all of these, you know, fantastic demands that Franco and Mike have been listing uh, are long gone. I can assure you those aren't going to show up. Well,
1: that's not, that's actually just not correct. This is from an initial list at the start of the bargaining. Um, Mike, if I can jump in there, that's just not correct. The Social Justice Fund isn't something new. Um, I mean, you go on the PSAC's own website and it talks about using the Social Justice Fund to send members to climate conferences. You look at the Social Justice Fund that produces a report that advocates for higher business taxes. So this isn't yeah, just Frank, a new social man. justice I mean, fund in all kinds of different all unions. Of it is not a new that. idea that in up, all kinds of, and, of unions, and, including and Kim, in the sector. I agree with wait, 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 you there, which even shows that taxpayers are getting hit by other unions, too. And, and look, I mean, in no way, shape, or form have government employees been falling behind. In the federal level here in Ottawa, we saw hundreds of thousands of employees receive a pay raise. We've seen tens of thousands of new bureaucrats added, And let's also talk about the managers here, not PSAC, but let's also talk about the government managers, because that's paid for by taxpayers as well. We have seen $559 million in bonuses paid out during the pandemic years, uh, many to managers in the bureaucracy when their own departments can barely meet half
0: of their own objectives. Okay, let me give Jim a chance here to respond. Go ahead, Jim.
2: Well, on the Social Justice Fund issue, uh, this is a practice that many Canadian unions, public sector and private sector, have negotiated for decades, and there's nothing new. I know they're trying to make this sound like some kind of new woke initiative uh, from unions, but what unions in Canada have done, as I said, part of what we're going to do is we're going to negotiate donations to various uh, charities, uh, emergency relief, and uh, social and environmental causes as part of their bargaining. This is a very common practice, and... Um, I, I don't know, again, what specific amounts they're trying to negotiate, but uh, this is not a new practice, and it's uh, it's quite widespread in Canada.
1: And we're talking about over, like, we're talking about $2 million plus is what they're pushing for here. And, and, you know, I don't care what type of advocacy they're pushing for. They shouldn't be using government negotiations and getting taxpayers' money to advocate for whatever public policy initiative they want. If you want to advocate for public policy, do so with your own money. Don't rely on tax dollars through
0: the back door through government negotiations. Okay, Franco, we just have one. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. We've got a minute left here. No,
2: uh, I was just going to say it's all part of the compensation envelope that the unions negotiate. Two million dollars, Franco, across 135,000 workers is not very much uh, at all. And they understand, the union understands, this comes out of the overall pie that they can negotiate. So ultimately, it's the union members who are saying collectively, we're going to give a little bit of our compensation that we negotiate to these various causes because the union believes uh, in in building a a more inclusive society and a better environment. This is a positive thing. Okay, gentlemen, I I want to thank
1: two million dollars isn't that much money, but that's money coming from taxpayers who are struggling, who have lost a job, maybe took a pay cut or maybe even worried about losing their business. Thank you. Recession looms.
0: Thank you, guys, for a good discussion. I appreciate it. Jim Stanford, Center for Future Work, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers. All right, here we go now with no-fault auto insurance in British Columbia. That's now the law of the land in B.C. How is no-fault insurance working out so far? Well, for most drivers, if you've not been involved in a collision, you haven't had to deal with ICBC lately. I think a lot of people would say it seems to be working out okay, especially since ICBC premiums were reduced after they introduced no-fault insurance. But... What if you are involved in a crash? What if you are injured in an accident? How's that working out for you? What if you're involved in a crash that is completely not your fault and you end up getting whacked in the wallet anyway? Now, that's what a Vancouver Island family say happened to them. Jonathan Tranfield, he's a landscaper on the island. His wife, Angela Murray, they were in their truck, their business truck. They run for their landscaping company. And they were involved in a a crash with another vehicle. Turned out the other vehicle was stolen. I've got Michael Mulligan standing by. Have a listen to Tranfield here describing what happened. And you'll also hear the voice here of Czech News reporter Kendall Hansen. Have a listen.
4: The vehicle straightened out. Then hit the throttle again one more time and then ended up shifting completely sideways and we hit him in the driver's door. A BC ambulance was close and paramedics tended to the family while they noticed the other driver walk away and start hitchhiking. It turned out the truck was stolen.
0: Okay, then uh, Tranfield goes on to describe how ICBC supplied him with a replacement truck while his own vehicle was repaired. He said the truck was not appropriate to run his business. Have a listen
4: i need a three-quarter ton to a one-ton truck this one's not capable for a lot of the stuff i need to do for my business
0: okay have a listen to what his wife has to say here angela murray saying like look you know we're the victims here and yet how did how did we end up getting hurt here in this thing by icbc have a listen to what she says here
5: we were hit by an intoxicated person in a stolen vehicle with our kids in the car And you're telling me we have no coverage and we owe $1,000 like that. I just don't
0: understand. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Mulligan. Michael's a personal injury lawyer. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. He practices in Victoria. Mike, thanks for coming on again today.
6: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, Michael, before we dig into some of the aspects of this case here, no-fault auto insurance here. Could you give me kind of a thumbnail sort of definition of how how this works? When you, if you're, let's say you're involved in a crash and it's not, it doesn't matter whose fault it is anymore, right?
6: That's essentially right. So before the no fault was brought in uh, in 2021, uh, back when people were responsible for their actions, uh, if you caused a uh, car accident and damage somebody's property or hurt them, uh, you could be sued, uh, yeah. and the uh, principle there would be that. Uh, If you were at fault for something, you would be, you or your insurance company, ultimately, would wind up having to pay the person to put them back in the position they would have been in, but for the accident, right? That was the watchword. We compensate somebody. With no fault, uh, the idea is that you can no longer sue somebody who's careless and damages your property or injures you. And so your only recourse uh, is to go... uh, you know, cap in hand to ICBC to make a claim against your own insurance, right? And the idea is that uh, if we don't spend money sorting out who's responsible for the accident and you can't sue somebody, that will save some money. And and that's true. You pay less for your insurance. But as the family's finding out, you also get less. And and I should say the family here is fortunate that they got any uh, compensation Uh, at all for things like the uh, rental vehicle, even though it was uh, inadequate, uh, because the way that works is that you really need to insure yourself because you can no longer sue the careless person who hits you or damages something. And so rather than a system where the person responsible is on the hook, now you're basically on the hook in terms of what insurance have you purchased from ICBC. Uh, And so, for example you can choose to purchase loss-of-use coverage for uh, your car if it's damaged and you're waiting for it to be repaired. This family happily had that. If they didn't have it, they would have received nothing for that, and they would have just had to wait to see whether and how long it took for their car to be fixed. And the idea is that the thief who hit them (laughs) driving carelessly would get the same benefits as they would. Uh, And so the the general watchword is rather than uh, the other person, person responsible, having to pay. It's uh, now uh, we've done away with that, uh, and you're left with uh, whatever uh, first-party insurance uh, you've purchased from ICBC.
0: What would you say? I remember when David Eby, when he was the cabinet minister responsible for these big changes here in auto insurance, he said, "Look, you know, we're giving, we're giving our customers, our ICBC customers, we're doing them a big." favor here, because we're going to save a lot of money. We're going to cut the lawyers out of the, the middleman lawyers out of a lot of these cases here. You know, you can still sue if there is criminal negligence involved. If you're injured by a drunk driver, for example, you can still sue, the government says, but in the vast majority of these collisions, no fault. Forget about all these expensive lawsuits. Let's cut the lawyers out of it. We're going to make sure you get the treatment and care you deserve and need if you're injured in a crash, and it's going to cost you a lot less money in your insurance. What, what is wrong with that argument, in your opinion?
6: Uh, well, it, it certainly is cheaper. That That's true. Yeah, uh, And if you have complete faith uh, that uh, ICBC will just choose to treat you in a, a fair fashion, uh, then you need not have a system where there could be any recourse to go to a, a judge to have that uh, decision uh, reviewed. So if you're comfortable with uh, that, it's certainly cheaper, right? If you don't spend any money figuring out who's responsible. Uh, and another change that was made is that, people used to get uh, compensation for like the injury they might suffer, pain and suffering, right? You might've heard of that. Uh, That's all gone. Uh, And so, for example, this family was hit by the uh, uh, thief (laughs) who left uh, and they're apparently going off to, uh, uh, you know, get physiotherapy and various things. They'll get their physiotherapy bills paid, but that's about it. Um, And so one of the challenges or one of the problems with this no fault scheme uh, is that the, Uh, the legal system generally accords with what people would think would be fair, right? That's sort of the common law developed over a long period of time in accordance with broad sort of societal views of, well, what's fair, right? For example, that idea that if somebody's careless and damages your property or hurts you, they should have to fix that, right? To put you back where you would have been uh, before. This runs counter to some of those sort of core, you know, sort of values of fairness, The idea that the careless car thief would get the same benefits as the innocent family who gets hit just doesn't seem to accord with principles of fairness, and it doesn't. Uh, But it is cheaper, Uh, and so people like cheap things. And I can tell you, anyone who's sort of uh, familiar with how the system works, uh, as I am, would be you, I would advise you strongly to get your own disability coverage so that you don't wind up at the mercy of ICBC if, God forbid, you're seriously injured in a car accident. Right. Uh, because that's what you will wind up, uh, that's the position you will wind up in uh, if you are seriously hurt. And so you should think carefully about that, particularly if you're somebody who has, you know, responsibilities for family or others, right? You're working uh you don't want to find yourself in a position where you are at the complete mercy of ICBC uh and their decisions without a, a meaningful and independent mechanism to review them. Have, uh, have you have, heard, you have, you heard
0: have you heard from anyone who any clients or other people who've come to you for advice or assistance, people who have been injured in a car collision in an auto accident, and they're not satisfied with the the care and treatment and response they're getting from ICBC because the way the government had described no fault insurance was that if you are injured in a crash, the the ICBC will be there for you with everything you need to recover from your injuries. This is what they call the enhanced care model. Millions and millions of dollars available for therapies and treatment. How is that working out? Like when you when people come to you for help, what are they telling you? What are you what kind of stories are you hearing?
6: Sure. Well, I don't think I can think of a better uh, government-speak euphemism than enhanced care. Uh, it's no such thing. Uh, the, prior to uh, the no-fault system being implemented, for example, in this fact pattern, right, with this family, uh, yeah. they, would have been, they would have been able to get complete recovery to put themselves back in the position they would have been in but for the careless thief crashing into them. Uh, they wouldn't have had, a, I think in this case, a $1,000 deductible for their rental car, which they were very fortunate to get at all. And that's only because they happened to have purchased that kind of rental car uh, replacement car insurance themselves. If they hadn't, they would have got nothing at all. Um, and uh, the the system is in no way enhancing the care that these people are getting. I should say for one group, it is enhanced. For the careless people like the thief, their care and benefits are better uh, because they would of course had no one to sue. They caused the accident. He's responsible for it. The guy apparently was drunk, hit the car and then took off hitchhiking, never to be found, not charged with anything because he's never been located. That person would get enhanced care under the no- fault scheme because they would get the same care as the family that he hit. Uh, We used to have this system called Part 7 Benefits, which would provide some sort of basic uh, medical care and so on, for the even though the person's responsible for the accident. And so for the careless drunken thief, their care is enhanced. For the innocent family who gets hurt, their care has been uh, reduced very substantially, as we've seen in this particular case. So that's what we've done when we get rid of the concept of fault. And everyone's just in a land of, uh, la-la land of uh, no-fault, which is what we have now.
0: All right. My guest is Michael Mulligan. We continue talking about no-fault auto insurance. Lots of phone calls here. Terry in Coquitlam. Hi, Terry. Go ahead.
7: Hi. um, I was hit about 16 months ago, rear-ended. I've been in physiotherapy for 16 months, but it's a constant struggle with ICBC. Every six weeks, I get a new adjuster, and they're trying to push me off and threatening to cut me off of service. Um, I finally got a private MRI because I couldn't get into the system, and uh, I discovered I've got uh, compressed discs, leaking discs. I've got quite a severe amount of damage, and I'm still fighting ICBC just to keep up with my physio.
0: Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear you're going through that. Like, what have you tried appealing? I know there's like a, isn't there like an ICBC fairness commissioner you can go to 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 complain? I haven't
7: had to get to that point yet because I keep fending them off uh, with uh, phrases like, you know, you're bullying me, you're making me feel uncomfortable, things of that nature. But, I mean, like I say, every six weeks, it's a brand new uh, person and the uh, saga starts all over
0: again. Wow. Wow. Okay. Th- thank you for sharing that story, and I, I wish you a full and complete recovery. Michael Mulligan, what do you think of that?
6: Well, that's the sort of treatment you, unfortunately, will wind up getting from a bureaucracy that doesn't have meaningful oversight. Uh, the Fairness Commissioners like making a complaint to the ombudsperson. Uh, yeah. They don't have uh, actual power. There is a thing called the Civil Resolution Tribunal that can review some decisions, uh, yep. But uh, the people on it are not independent; they're all appointed by the government on uh, short-term contracts. So, uh, best of luck to you there. Uh, unfortunately, you're getting the reality of bureaucratic decisions when they know uh, they can't be meaningfully reviewed by somebody okay. who's independent.
0: Nicole in Langley, hi Nicole, go ahead.
5: Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I have to say, like my heart is just pounding just listening to these stories. It is absolutely infuriating when you go in when you're in an accident. Um, And and you're traumatized to whatever severity. And then you have to deal and literally fight for absolutely everything through ICBC. And and, and it's government regulated. I mean, we yeah, they say that we're paying less for our insurance now, but actually we're not. Because now we have to make sure that we have things like the, the replacement insurance, that we have disability insurance, that we have to go through all this stuff. So who actually is, is saving any money here? You're not saving money on your time. There's absolutely no recourse. All you have to do is go to ICBC. They hold all the cards, and all these people get bent over backwards when they can't even bend over anymore because this poor man <laughs> had his back blown out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Why don't we bring in private insurance, make ICBC competitive, make, make them sure that they have coverages that are acceptable to a wide range of people instead of just saying, yeah, no, this is all we offer, and then if you want something more, pay for it. Yeah, okay. pay for it, and if you pay for it, you still have to fight for it anyways to even get it. It's crazy.
0: Thank you, Nicole, for the call. Michael, we just have a minute left here. Your thoughts?
6: Sure. Well, that's what you get from a government monopoly. Uh, I should say one of the big advocates for this monopoly no-fault system, which is really what it is, you can't go to another insurer, was the uh, ICBC union. Uh, they mm. were big proponents of it. Uh, and they were, were very concerned about the risk of the possibility of competition because it would do away, they said, with the possibility of thousands of jobs. Uh, so mm. that's uh, in part yeah. the motivation along with, uh, you know, you get less but it costs less. So that seemed short-term popular so this is what we've got
0: michael thank you for coming on the show today i appreciate it
6: always a pleasure have a great day yeah
0: you bet thank you okay we're getting jesse brown up on the line to get his take on the fight between twitter and the cbc let's take a couple of phone calls here michael and langley hi michael what do you think of all this hey good morning mike yeah i'm calling in
8: i mean. Conservatives are spot on. The CBC is the least relevant network in Canada. It's the least watched. What do they have besides hockey and one good show every two years, or pardon me, 10 years? I mean, I watch more PBS than CBC, and I think
2: most Canadians do, and it really should morph into something like PBS in the state because right now it's just not a relevant station.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Well, we'll see what happens here. The politics is is going to be interesting to to watch here. Let's check in with Jesse Brown now, the publisher and editor-in-chief of CanadaLand.com. Very pleased to welcome him. Jesse, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, you bet, Jesse. Thank you for doing it. What do you think about Twitter? uh, the CBC effectively quitting Twitter over this? Do you think that's a, a good move?
4: No, I think it's it's pretty stupid. Uh, I mean, just if you look at their mandate, CBC uh, is obligated to provide Canadians with its content, and, and most importantly, its news where Canadians want to get it. And millions of Canadians use Twitter. Whatever we want to say about Twitter, and whatever Twitter management's you know foolish uh, you know inclination under Elon Musk, if they're picking a fight with CBC, it doesn't mean CBC has to have that fight we still have millions of Canadians going to Twitter to get their news, and for CBC to take their ball and go home, uh, who loses and who wins in that scenario? It's, it's the Canadian newsreader, it's the public that pays for the CBC that loses.
0: Yeah, the same thought occurred to me yesterday. I mean, I follow CBC on Twitter, I, I take a look at their news content, and I often use Twitter to, to check out their stories, and now, now I guess those stories will not be there. So, I mean, do you think they should have just taken this one on the chin and just kept kept on going like kept putting their content up on twitter anyway
4: i think so uh you know it's i'm a news publisher i have my misgivings about what's happening with twitter it's very obvious that elon musk doesn't like the media doesn't like journalists and is doing everything he can to make life hard for us but it's not about me it's not about my fight with elon or elon musk's you know fight with, with 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 uh with journalism It's it's you know my job is to get these stories to people who pay me and uh, to report them and my team to report them. So yeah, yeah, you know, and and I also feel like they've fallen into a trap here. Um, CBC is supposed to be uh, not on anyone's side politically, and what we have happening, and it's pretty dangerous in Canada, is the Liberal Party is saying we are the saviors of journalism. We're funding journalism. We're standing up for journalism. And the conservatives are saying, "Let's defund the CBC. The media is the enemy." Now, what we should be doing is saying, "Look, you two fight it out. We're here to tell the people what's going on. Yeah. Uh, we're not. We're not on anybody's side here." And instead, it's looking really clear like Trudeau is standing up for the CBC. He's also funding, uh, of course, the government funds the CBC and, and increasingly funds the rest of the media. And you've got Pierre Polyev saying defund the cbc and saying elon musk let's slap a, a label on them so it really feels like we've been drawn into a political you know mud fight
0: yeah, yeah. hey last question for you jesse do you think when twitter puts this label on the cbc government funded media is that is that unfair or do you think that that's just simply an, an accurate descriptor
4: I think it's being done for unfair and biased reasons. The implication is clear. Why this? Like, why isn't that on the National Post? Why isn't this on? Like, government funding goes to probably to your radio station. I would imagine at this point it goes to most media in Canada. So why is it going to the CBC? Yes, this is about uh, you know a, a vision that they are somehow you know uh, an enemy to certain interests. But it's also true they are government funded. Well, yeah. And if you're you know if you're a news organization saying. I don't like that fact. So I'm, I'm leaving. Well, that's a fact. Like it's, ac- it, it, it's, it's a simple state, uh, statement of, of truth. It's, it's accurate.
0: Jesse, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. Jesse Brown, their publisher and editor in chief of Canadaland.com Let's go back to your calls on the open line in this one here, Doug in Langley. Doug, what do you think? Hi,
2: Mike. Thank- yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I actually disagree with what your previous uh, guest just said. It's not accurate because if you look at the definition, the Twitter definition of government-funded, yeah. it means that the government has input into the editorial content. Right. And that's not true at all. And and frankly, CBC isn't government-funded. It's publicly funded. That's a whole different yeah. thing because if you take the the view that the government, that, that Trudeau is controlling the, the CBC – then that means that Stephen Harper controlled the editorial content of CBC.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, no, if you have to look very closely at this, why CBC is upset, if you take a look at Twitter's official definition of this label, government-funded media, this is what Twitter themselves say this means. That means that government may have, quoting directly from Twitter here now, Government may have varying degrees of government involvement over editorial content. That's what Twitter is alleging. Interesting word, may. It says may have involvement in their editorial content, which, of course, the CBC denies. They say they're independent of government when it comes to their editorial. That's why they're upset. Ryan in Cloverdale. Ryan, what do you think?
8: Hey, I think uh, there's a lot of overreaction to this whole thing. Uh, having a label on you of uh, government-funded when it is true is perfectly fine. And like your other caller said, if, uh, in regards to other parties being the ruling power in the future or in the past, they'd have to live with that tag as well. So Crimea river is not a big deal. I think this is a very strategic ploy on Pierre's part, which I think is kind of smart in a sense, because we knew the Liberals would act up. Um, and it just makes them look bad with Bill C-11, I think it is. Um, wow. And furthermore, in given current times, should we be funding a billion dollars towards media, whether it's CBC or other media outlets? That's a yeah. lot of money during current times where that could be going to a lot better things. If the NDP and the Liberals want that debt plan going through, how much of that billion dollars could fund that?
0: Right? Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Does. Thank you, Ryan, for the call. Well, we'll see if this is a smart move by Polly I think it's quite interesting. Like, Obviously, there will be a lot of people who support defunding CBC, but what if you live in some small rural town that doesn't have a local radio station? That might be your only local radio news outlet there. Is he really going to defund that? That's why I'm starting to wonder if he would actually follow through on it, if he does become Prime Minister. George in Abbotsford. Hi, George. What do you think?
8: Good morning, Mike. Good show as always. Mike, as your previous callers stated, all they're doing is stating the truth to the yeah. tune of one billion dollars a year. And let yeah. me ask you this. Yeah. During the pandemic, hundreds of thousands of Canadians struggled, lost their jobs, etc., And yet publicly reported and not defended by CBC was twenty five thousand dollar bonuses. For many, many, many of the CBC employees, without government money, there would not have been those bonuses.
0: Thank you, George, for the call. Well, this is an interesting showdown here politically now between Pauliev and Trudeau. That is for sure. Personally, I think the CBC just should have taken this one on the chin here, just... Take the hit from Twitter and keep on providing the content on this Twitter platform. A lot of people get their news on Twitter and these other social media platforms. So Twitter, a lot of people are on there getting their news content. I know I check CBC on Twitter, so I think they should have kept just doing what they were doing. That's just my personal opinion on it.